Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey Cold Tea Knockreiner. Huh? I cold tea? Don't actually. Cold tea. Opposite I'm gonna have of to hot do coffee? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. We talk about teapots, we talk about hot, hot coffee. I don't think about these things, they just come out of my mouth when I start to say Corey. Huh, do you think funny. I planned this crap? <laughs> okay apparently not hot coffee uh, might make sense later as will teapot <laughs> we'll see we'll see ask me again at the outro mark on today's episode we will be discussing a hack against a pretty massive organization and another one that somewhat tangentially involves hot coffee uh after that we'll go into potentially taking down gas stations with cyber attacks maybe not uh, and then we will end with a discussion on a pretty cool program that the U.S. government has been doing for, I guess, a few years now. Uh, with that, though, uh, let's go ahead and, I don't know, let's just get let's started. Steal a car and murder spree on in. Okay. Gore's been playing too many violent video games. So let's start today with the big one. Uh, I mean, at least it felt like the big one from my perspective as a, I don't know, what would I describe myself? A cyber news enthusiast. Not that I enjoy watching other companies suffer, but this one was kind of insane. Uh, Uber confirmed on just about a week and a half ago that they were, quote, responding to a cybersecurity incident impacting their organization, which... Like to those that were paying attention, what was going on that day felt like a absolutely massive understatement, all things considered for Uber. Yeah, really? <laughs> it's not what I read on Reddit said. <laughs> so it, it said a little bit more. <laughs> correct. Prior to their announcement, uh, a hacker going by the name of Teapot started publishing screenshots. I'm yes, a Gordon? little oh teapot, short and stout. Is there, my is there a mute button in here? <laughs> Sorry. Find the mute button. You got to do that. That is like, that's <laughs> the least lead hacksery name I've ever heard. By the way, teapot. Wow. I, yeah. Whatever. By the way, I'm giving away the game, but obviously the dude is from UK. He enjoys his <laughs> tea and crumpets. There you Let's go. Let's keep going. <laughs> keep going. So teapot started publishing screenshots of internal Uber systems, including their Slack. Uh, their Azure cloud infrastructure, uh, their internal finance systems, uh, their HackerOne bug bounty dashboard, all of these from like a administrative view of all of them. Um, they also started posting messages into the internal team Slack saying, I am the hacker at Factor Systems, you suck, basically. They started commenting on all of their bug open bug bounty cases as HackerOne. By the way, let's talk about HackerOne for two seconds. It's bad enough that obviously this dude is an admin in all kinds of important internal systems, but the HackerOne stuff, that should be extra worrying because it's like a map of here are the vulnerabilities we know uh, about Uber that have not necessarily been patched yet. So yeah. you definitely don't want hackers uh, to get that kind of early <laughs> view on things you're working to fix. Although so let's when, give a little bit of kudos for Uber, at least uh, having a vulnerability program like that. Good for them. Yes. Uh, so as we'll get into, like, yeah, yes, this could happen to anyone, but Uber did not do anything to help their cause along the way. 
with uh, limiting the access the attacker was able to have. Um, so the hacker, when asked over Telegram, said that he got in by social engineering a Uber employee by basically he got the username and password probably off like the dark web. Um, when we'll we'll jump to who this individual uh, reportedly is, and they've this organization's got a bit of a modus operandi of buying credentials on the dark web. Um, so he says he got credentials and then just sent a deluge of multi-factor authentication requests, basically just kept firing them away. And then finally contacted. I will say, the, I, I know we're, we we have thoughts about Uber, but good on them for at least using MFA. Uh, I mean, we'll learn that MFA also requires users to have good security awareness too, but at least they did. I mean, my understanding is he tried to log in a few times and it would MFA held him up for a bit. He would try to log in a number of times, a lot of times. Uh, and then finally contacted this individual via WhatsApp, claimed to be from the IT department from uh, Uber and said, we can make it stop, just accept one, which is technically accurate. Um, and by the way, this was a push notification MFA, push notification. similar to how yep. our product, you know, our product has a lot of different ways we can send factors to you. We will do SMS, though it's not the best. We have QR codes and we can do OTPs, but push is a nice, usable, easy one that just puts a message on the actual real user's phone. So just to add to what you're saying, that user at some time was getting all kinds of pushes popping up on their phone. And presumably they realized they weren't logging into anything at the time. So uh, I'm sure we'll get to it, but that should be a weird sign to you. If you're using push authentication and you start getting lots of them and you're not doing anything, uh, maybe think about it for a second. That's definitely a contact the IT department directly over the official communication channels. Yes, time. absolutely. Not a just sit there and wait for someone to reach out to you over WhatsApp call and you. say, oh, just accept it. Yeah, and of course, WhatsApp is probably your official way that IT always communicates with you, right? I hope yeah, not. Exactly. <laughs> but anyways, uh, keep so going. Once they compromised the account, they added their own device as a MFA authenticator to allow them to retain access. Uh, and then from there, they just they had an end to the system. They started elevating their access. So along the way, they found a network share that had a break glass in case of emergency script in there for incident response. There was basically a text file full of administrative credentials to every single tool in the company. Uh, and from that is how they were able to access all of these tools. So like I said, you know, this kind of social engineering attack, it, honestly, it terrifies me because it could happen to anyone. Like we do, I feel like a very good job of educating and training our own internal employees at WatchGuard, but no one's perfect. And all it takes is one slip up and someone's got access to an account. But Uber definitely shot themselves in the foot by having this text file with a bunch of administrative credentials somewhere easily accessible, or at least easily accessible for this individual. I agree. I, I'm curious, though, if that was like a, for instance, I mean, what's the takeaway for that break glass? You, an IT organization should be using a password manager, and many enterprise password managers have lots of ways to do shared credentials. There are times where, you know, multiple people on a team might need to use a, a single credential, maybe because the device doesn't support many. And there's secure ways to kind of do that through uh, any sort of password manager. Uh, whereas this way of literally writing a custom script that has clear text credentials is kind of crazy. I do wonder, you know, this is kind of inside baseball, but the reason this scares me is even if you're a company with good practices, 
it doesn't mean that one IT guy, one administrator, one user does the wrong thing. There's clearly a case of of the initial user. You know, we can't lay all the blame on on that person or individual, but they did a wrong thing that if they had reacted differently to the the push bombing, as they call it, it could have been saved. But I, you know, before I get too judgy of, of Uber, maybe they have a password manager. Maybe most of IT does want to do it. And this is just an easy button that one individual did. I, I don't know. We'll never know, probably. But I do agree with you. This script was silly, whether it's something that all the IT department does as a practice or, or something that one individual does. It's the type of thing that hopefully your training catches, you know. Uh, we don't have specifically a training that's telling our IT folks don't write scripts that have clear text credentials everywhere. But we hope all the other trainings we have about the right way for handling credentials hopefully just prevents people from doing this. But that is the worry. Like you say, at the end of the day, it comes down to a human problem. You can have great security and one individual can can do something that they shouldn't, whether intentionally, accidentally, or, or, or ignorantly. And that I think that's what keeps all of us security teams awake at night. Yeah, and honestly, like, so looking back at push notifications as a multi-factor uh, option, like it's one that I think I'm gonna speak for you. You and I both feel like is one of, if not the strongest MFA option you can have, because it includes like information about the authenticating source in it too. And so in theory, if you are reviewing them, you can see where the authenticating client is coming from and act accordingly. But at a minimum, like like you said, if you see one come through and you are not authenticating, like it should be a immediate flag that someone has compromised your credential and assume that much until proven that something else is broken instead. Just for the technical pendants out there, I, I wouldn't say push is the strongest, but I actually don't. There's a lot of talk uh, after this breach that, oh, push is bad, you gotta do this. I think push is a great mix of security and usability. Push is certainly better than SM-based, uh, SMS-based, you know, one-time passwords. Uh, there is something, uh, the extra friction of having to type numbers, as long as it's delivered in a secure channel, is good too. But I actually think push is as good as a one-time password if it's handled properly. It's over a secure channel. It, should, it will only go to the device of the user. And like you mentioned, our push has a lot more information that will tell you if it was your login. And more importantly, by the way, even that extra information shouldn't be necessary here. If you're getting 20 push notifications, whether they have information or not, if you haven't logged in 20 times, you know there's a problem. So I, I do. I, I, what I'm saying is I there might be stronger. You can go really deep hardware uh, as a second factor, but then it's a trade-off between usability and supporting it and expense. So what I'm saying is I agree with you. I don't think push is, is insecure or, or is damaged because of this. Uh, there might be more secure methods, but they're harder. But the key thing is to me is training. I, I do think products can help and it's something we're certainly considering as a team where if we detect many pushes at once, at least we can do something extra to either throttle, lock out, or inform the user of an attack. But this should be an obvious thing, but it wasn't for this employee. So I think the key takeaway is push is good, but you need to tell your users about how it works and about push bombing. And I guess if it, it means the paint by numbers telling them, 
hey, if you get 10 push messages, I get that it's 2 a.m. at night, but if you get 10 push messages and you haven't authenticated, don't approve it. Might be a pain in the ass, but at the very least, uh, I, I, I would love you, as you said, Mark, to contact IT immediately. But even if it's 2 a.m., at least just put your freaking phone in uh, do not disturb mode and at least contact IT the next day. Don't approving it just because it's happening a lot is the worst thing to do. Exactly. Now, Uber wasn't the only organization hit by this individual, too. So over the weekend, allegedly, uh, a couple days after assuming this, the allegedly, claims are true. Yeah. Uh, so the at least the individual did claim credit to this one, too, um, that they compromised Rockstar, or I guess Take-Two Interactive, the publisher for Rockstar, the developer, who is the developer of one of the most popular video games ever made, Grand Theft Auto. Uh, so they hacked into their organization, potentially, likely using a similar method, and stole and started leaking gigabytes of videos from the development of the upcoming Grand Theft Auto 6 game. They even threatened to leak source code as a form of extortion uh, to try and- By the way, I'm, I'm laughing because if you want to have attention as a malicious hacker, Grand Theft Auto 6 is like the most anticipated information game. Like Rockstar hasn't said crap about it. Everyone knows it's been coming for five years, 10 years probably. And meanwhile, Grand Theft Auto 5 has been re-released two bazillion times and we're getting sick of it. So if you want to get the world's attention, at least the gaming world's attention, <laughs> leak information about GTA 6. By the way, yeah. I'm feeling really, really thirsty. I need a little hot coffee. <laughs> Few people will get that. What, what are you laughing about? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, kudos to anyone that gets that reference. You're also a nerd. Um, yeah. And by the way, so, it's also gross. I, I'm yes. not that thirsty. <laughs> uh, so that also, so Rockstar may not be the only ones to. Uh, so take two themselves for a hit for a, what was it, 2K games, uh, where a few days after, the day after this Rockstar one, uh, people that had open support tickets with 2K games started getting a responses back to their tickets with links containing malware, a malicious zip file. So that one hasn't been confirmed, but it's adjacent enough that it's entirely possible that it's related to the same individuals or individual. <laughs> and so the reason I say individual is uh, allegedly, this is one of the individuals associated with the hacking organization known as Lapsus that we've talked about before. So Uber actually put out uh, an update to their initial um, response to this uh, cyber attack, claiming that Lapsus was the cause of this issue. And I think I mentioned this in our internal teams chat, Corey, that you know, this felt like the exact same style of activity as Lapsus, but there's no way in heck that it could be Lapsus because who could who could be that dumb to do it again? Yeah, oh, they yeah. were arrested back in December of last year. And so, like, how could it be them? They were arrested. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> even though, so if you I think we even talked about on this on this show back in December, the majority of the organization known as Lapsus was arrested. Uh, they were primarily out of Europe, United Kingdom specifically, including their their ringleader or leader who goes by the pseudonym of White. Uh, so someone on, uh, what was it, uh, Breached.io, a pretty popular underground forum. In fact, the owner of Breached.io made a post on September 18th publicly linking Teapot, 
to the original Lapsus mastermind, which was that 17-year-old from Oxford, England, known as White. And he updated the uh, the Doxpin docs of uh, White to link him to this one as well. And then just today, as we're recording it, the City of London police announced that they had arrested a unnamed, because they're a minor, 17-year-old from Oxfordshire on suspicions of hacking. By the way, so my silly, analysis- silly little pet peeve, and I believe, by the way, the police number with the year 17 year old is correct but in the two bazillion articles about this i've read he's been described as a 16 year old to an 18 year old so i'm just like come on guy basic fact checking y'all yes so like the because uh the uk does a actually pretty good job of protecting the identity of minors that are in the the criminal system hey, we don't US have any confirmation too. on any of this yeah decent job but i don't know i feel like uh U.S. does way worse than the U.K. The U.K. like if the BBC posts the name the of someone, leak? they get because I thought I, I mean we I, I usually don't know the names of the ones that are minors. So if we're going to take this tangent, the difference between the U.S. and the U.K. is within the, the media. So the U.S. like NBC News can go post the name of some random kid if they want to that was just arrested and under alleged charges. In the UK, you get in massive trouble as a media organization if you post the name of a So it's less about, but both governments don't leak the information of underage, but news organizations in the US aren't forced by the government to follow. I think that's that's pretty much the case. But anyways, because this individual is protected, we don't know, like we can't say for certain that's who it is, but all the stars seem to be aligning that this white slash teapot guy was a part of lapses. If you remember, they hacked a lot of massive organizations like even Microsoft trying to steal and extort them for source code. They were arrested in December of this year. He was allegedly like released in April and told given a internet ban. So you're not allowed to use computers or the internet. And then within a few months, went right back to his ways of breaching and extorting organizations. And so if that is the case, like I what an idiot. Like you, you couldn't even just stay out of jail for a few months on this. Like, I feel like at some point the UK is going to throw the absolute hammer at him. Actually, I don't know what juvenile, uh, the juvenile criminal system in the UK looks like, but it's just it feels very short sighted. Not even like a you know I'm doing all this in order to get a job later as a Kevin Mitnick style persona. This is just someone being dumb and going and. With no obsec, no obsec, and creating a massive blast radius just for the heck of it. Ah, it feels stupid. So, long story short, apparently this individual is back, at least in jail or in the criminal system. So maybe we've got another six month reprieve until they're released again. But that still doesn't help Uber or Rockstar restore the uh, the damages that have been caused for the releases of their sensitive information out there. I, the, the skeptic or uh, the cynical person in me say, thinks that Take Two is just going to profit from this, and it's creating some extra buzz and hype around GTA Six that, in the long run, will will benefit them. I'm looking forward to the uh, GTA Six mission where you have to go and off a hacker. A hacker. Oh wow! <laughs> I I'd take your bet. I, I mean, as far as I would support you if you made a bet that uh, that would happen. I I there I'm I will be looking for a storyline related to this now. I guarantee they will at some point in there. Um. So moving on to a kind of fun research uh, story that I picked up actually a couple of weeks ago on a Medium post that was linked to a. Uh, 
hacking uh, slash network security Reddit uh, subreddit. So a few weeks ago, there was a Medium post by Rose Security titled A Theoretically Devastating Cyber Attack on America's Gas Stations. So the post starts out by actually referencing H.D. Moore's research uh, dating back to 2015, where he wrote about 5,800 publicly accessible gas station automated automated tank gouges or ATGs saying basically there's a bunch of these vulnerable systems connected to the internet. What the heck is going on? Uh, so the researcher, they wanted to see how easy it would be to actually disrupt these internet accessible systems. Uh, so for those not in the oil and gas industry or people that don't own a gas station, ATGs are responsible for monitoring tank leakages at the gas station uh, gauge, gauging and alerting on fuel levels, monitoring tank temperature, and then a host of other available commands, all relating to gasoline storage at these facilities. Um, and a large number of these ATGs are manufactured by an organization called Vitor Root. And many of the operators seem to be configuring these ATG serial interfaces, so the management interfaces, with internet facing telnet access of report TCP 10001. Basically taking the system, or enabling Telnet, and then hooking it right up to the internet. And worst of all, uh, this Telnet access does not have any authentication whatsoever. So Nmap and Metasploit, they've already got modules to identify targets and run the kind of benign reporting commands on them. Uh, but the researcher wanted to see, okay, taking HD Moore's work seven years ago, like, what would happen if someone really wanted to screw up a bunch of gas stations days? Uh, so they walked through their own research of going to Shodan, doing a search for that port. They found a bit over 11,000 ATGs, with two-thirds of them being in the U.S. Uh, they then backed this up with a mass scan of the Internet on their own for port 10,001, found 85,000 public IPs with that port open. And when they tested them for the standard GET in tank inventory report command. They confirmed 11,000 of them were ATGs. They pointed out that their Python script, it was only 25 lines of code. And at that point ran a relatively benign command, but there's over 600 documented functions and codes for these tank management systems, including disruptive ones that could start or stop system tests or reset the entire instance. So basically, it looks like there are 11,000 gas stations out there with their gasoline management tank software connected to the internet, no authentication, and anyone could go log in and turn them off. So like that's kind of okay. Nice. Th th this is where I'm going to 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 push back against you and the researcher, because the researcher himself mentions that these most of these commands are starting or stopping tests and getting reports and they're benign so one of my complaints is he said what if one is not benign he shows a a partial screenshot of the 600 document features then he goes to the next thing which is asking a question can an attacker shut down fuel stations with this he believes the answer is clear but he never puts anything together there's one thing I will accept here, but how do any of those commands shut anything down, Mark? I, that, that's the one. My, my only complaint in his research is he or she didn't, I, I assume he, I didn't look at uh, uh, actually Rose Security. It could be. But I didn't look 
what are they saying? What are they saying is the command that actually will shut down these fueling stations? So the ones that stood out to me were the ones related to system reset. The, the, the first ATG one itself. is the only yes. one, and that is system reset. But does system reset just resets? This is a, si a system to test safety. It doesn't mean gas turns off. It resets the safety system that does tests on tanks. Every single one of the first 24 commands he shows are just run a test to get a result or don't. So I, I by the way, exposing this on Telenet, uh, on the internet, stupid. This is bad no matter what. They should put access control in front of this period. But my only complaint is to me, he leaves it an unanswered question that he believes you could shut down systems with this, but he never puts one and one and one together to show you that too. He never goes into any of these commands. By the way, the manuals are out there. You can find these TLS 3XX series manuals everywhere. So if, if anyone wants to go through the commands, they're certain to. And I actually, because I was so irritated by him not saying why he thinks you can use it to shut down, I actually started looking through some, but I didn't spend time to look at all 600. But I, I actually question his result that you can actually shut down the gas system with this. You shut down the safety system that's occasionally doing tests to make sure it's not about to leak gas, but you don't necessarily shut down gas with this yet, as far as I can tell. So I, I would say my follow-up to the researcher is, hey, you're claiming that there's a shutdown here. Show us how, or at least share that command. And maybe that would make the gas companies do something about this more. So I felt it was incomplete, or it was maybe, I mean, the one argument I made is maybe if you go down further in that screenshot, you know, I, I haven't found the command yet. Maybe there is one that is clearly dangerous. And this uh, security researcher to protect folks doesn't want to put to show you what one plus one equals. They just want them to be fixed before that get becomes public. But I... The skeptical part in me, it, it didn't make the jump from could these benign testing commands and that system reset somehow, somehow shut down gas. And I haven't been convinced yet. Okay. Well, if they were able to shut down the gas, though, like, the impact bad. of that would be, <laughs> yes, that would be bad. <laughs> End topic. That'd be huge. <laughs> I mean, we already saw what happened with, like, the Colonial Pipeline shutting down the supply of gas. And the actual distribution of it at the pump would be not, but that would be bad. Could there could be a DOS here, and maybe I, I just wish the researcher would share more about how he thinks it, how, how this testing system, the safety testing system, leads to a shutdown. Uh, some of the tests are things like pressurized line tests, leak line leak tests. So maybe when you're doing that test, perhaps it disrupts the ability to for people to pump gas because it's locking those systems in order to do the pressurized testing. So maybe there's some sort of thing you could do if you stayed well, argue, with access like, to this, you could DOS it by running tests that somehow brought it offline. But again, even this, this is at least uh, responsible for monitoring levels within the tank too. And yeah, so yeah. being able to interfere with that could tangentially interfere with Act like usage if you, if you could if you could lie about levels you could certainly pretend it's empty when it's not but uh, this to me this testing system is not about actually affecting gas from being pumped it's about it's a sensor that's sharing information of where the levels are 
you know. So anyways, I just want to know more. I think it's great research. I think it's, I think whatever this system is capable of, once you have access to it, they should not have it on the internet regardless. Uh, even the information about where gas is and, and failed reports could be valuable to an attacker that wants to attack gas stations. So either way, his point is true. I just didn't make the jump because I don't think he's provided enough information to prove the jump yet. Yep, that's fair. Now, outside of gas stations, though, it feels like we still have a lot of issues with systems like IoT or OT connected directly to the Internet. And especially uh, these weird serial interfaces that used to maybe one, uh, back in the day, they literally were serial connections with a modem and dial up. But I think the HD Moore research he's referring to was a time where HD Moore specifically did scans looking for lots of legacy serial interfaces like this one being connected to the Internet. Yeah. So it still feels like an area where, like you said, even if it isn't necessarily we're going to shut down everything, they sure as heck should not have this exposed to the yeah. internet. And it feels sloppy. This is a this is an admin interface, even if it's an informational one. This is something that you know I would consider it confidential information for the gas company. So it's, not only is it silly to be exposed on the internet, but just telling it, come on, it's twenty twenty two. How much do uh, how much do you think one of these ATGs costs? I wonder if we can. Buy one? Get one and know. find if one of them actually works or not. Let's figure that out. Potential future research topic for the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Sounds cool. Automatic <laughs> tech gauge products. Our uh, our graphic could be an exploding gas station. Let's do some um, eBay so... searches. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on to the, uh, the last topic I wanted to head out. Uh, so you may have noticed that not, I guess, yeah, last week we did not have a podcast, and that's because Corey and I were both busy attending the FBI CISO Academy at Quantico. Uh, so a few times a year, uh, the FBI hosts this academy at the FBI Training Academy in Quantico. They in invite a few dozen CISOs from the private sector and state and local organizations to discuss defending against state-sponsored and criminal hackers through public and private sponsorship, basically, or so they host all these panels with actually pretty high ranking folks uh, from the U.S. intelligence community, the DOJ um, and other organizations they work with on a bunch of topics, including technical briefings on what the latest adversarial activity is from both state sponsored and criminal hackers, as well as just enabling frank conversations between the private sector and the federal government on how to resolve some of the issues we're seeing as a company and raise the overall security posture of our uh, as our of our country. So figured there's a lot we we can't talk about, uh, but there were some really interesting takeaways from it just at a high level that I thought Corey, you and I could kind of pitch out like this is my, uh, this whole organization was news to me until we got the invite and now having attended like I'm actually I've got a, I already had a good view or a good uh, opinion of the FBI and the DOJ. But now having seen like in person their efforts to try and strengthen this work with the private sector, it's honestly it's it's cool seeing this actually like happen. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I'll go back a little and say I never had a low uh, opinion of the DOJ or the FBI. But I would say three years ago, I probably had the same anecdotal perception that many businesses have where, you know, the private, the, the public sector, the government has always talked about uh, information sharing in the past. And it's been it feels like a one way street. You know, things like InfraGuard, although, you know, there's benefit to them, it never all felt too much like, you know, the kinds of information we felt we uh, or I felt we sometimes got from that was public information we already had through our own research or other security companies. So that was my old perception of the FBI. And of course, there's folks out there that worry about deep state and stuff like that, which was never me in the first place. But, you know, WatchGuard, we, we recently worked with the FBI even before this, and that alone changed my perception of that. You know, businesses also have the perception as if you uh, get their help in investigations, they somehow go beyond just the normal investigation and do other things too. Uh, that was not the case at all. So I had a pretty good perception going in, but I think the FBI CISO Academy is there just because they really want to establish two-way sharing. And they, they've realized this past perception. And they even know things like, you know, the fact that they, Mark mentioned there's some stuff we, we can't talk about because we can't, it was classified as secret. Uh, and, and, you know, we signed some stuff. But that it wasn't always like stuff that I didn't, that, that I, this is my opinion, by the way, there's things that you just can read from good threat research of other private organizations following nation state or state sponsored threat actors. So even the FBI realized that their good data security, when you're a, a corporation or an organization like the government that does have real classified top secret stuff, you have to follow that procedure. But the side effect is that sometimes puts classifications on stuff that are, as far as the true classification, probably the lowest, though technically classified, but then it makes it hard to share it when you do want to share it. So they even uh, talked about even the way uh, they've shared in the past because of things like classifications, it's been harder for them purely for the bureaucracy to unclassify. So just hearing people like Director Ray, all the top, you know, uh, a senior special agents or, or uh, group agents, and even John C. John Chris Inglis himself, the the new White House appointed uh, National Director of Cybersecurity. All of them said, hey, we're leaning towards sharing now. You know, if my if the agents are like, hey, this is classified, but I, I think it will help this company, they're like share first now. So just hearing I think the that word was, they exactly use was share until it hurts. Share until it hurts. Yeah, that is definitely one of their quotes. So that was encouraging because, you know, that one way street of sharing, I, I understand, by the way, the need for them to really have strict classification. They do have type of data they can't share. And I frankly don't want them sharing with private organizations. But this really seems to they have they have some new blood there and they've kind of unlocked the ability for them to help private organizations. So I, I would say maybe me and Mark are, are more up to speed than the average CSO just on threat landscape and stuff because we, we write about it in an 
uh, ourselves and research it ourselves. So I don't know if I learned a whole lot new. There's one or two defensive things that maybe we wanted to improve based on something we heard from them or, or other CISOs. But to me, it was really more about making the relationships and getting that trust. You know, why do businesses ultimately not want to work sometimes with another organization like the FBI? Because if you don't know them, you don't know if you can trust them and you have your own business priorities. And honestly, one way that, you know, John Chris Inglis put this is this is a way for us to make trust relationships in peacetime and work together in peacetime so that when the war does come and it will come, the only way to win this war is together. They can't do it alone and neither can us make the relationships in peacetime. And that way it's easy to come together and trust in wartime. So to me, ultimately, that was the, the biggest takeaway. And it made me even think about a stupid intro in one of our internet security reports, Mark, where you know I talked about all boats rise or fall on the tides together. We're not in. You might think you only have to worry about your security, but I think digital supply chain risk has showed we have connections we sometimes don't even realize, and we're all dependent on each other. So is is kind of goofy and, and optimistic and touchy-feely as it seems, I do think our neighbor's security and all of us coming together is one of the only ways to, to win this quote-unquote cyber war. So it was just the message that hit home for me personally. Yeah, I was honestly really impressed with their ability to take very frank and pointed feedback as well too throughout the course of the week. Like there were a lot of times where like they'd be discussing something going on and then one of the CISOs there would just say pointedly like you're I feel like you're not doing this to the best of your ability like there's a different way to be taking for this and they'd be like yeah you know what that makes sense let's take this back and act on it kind of thing I'd go as far as to say when we were getting too like uh nice to them or when we're like brown nosing saying yeah, yeah you guys are doing great they would even say hey wait we just we don't just want the reinforcement that this is good tell us the crap that we're doing wrong. So like you said, not only did they take it when it came up from the CISO side, but they were asking for it. They, I, you know, asking for it. They, they clearly want to improve. And you know how it is when you put a face behind a, you know, a magical three-letter entity. We know individuals now, and we can tell they're passionate about protecting our nation and about cybersecurity. It's 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 a different reason, and it, you know, it's not the the business side of things. It's more the nation, it pr literally protecting the lives of civilians, and and doing damage. You know, one of the things talking about where they're not, where we perceive they're not doing well is. Uh, the past few years, authorities, including the FBI, have taken down a lot. So I actually would give them kudos for finally actually prosecuting uh, some bad guys. But the one big frustration is it seems, especially when it crosses borders, these bad guys never pay a consequence, even when we know who did what. And they admitted the reality of that simply because of geopolitics, right? We have a list of names in Russia we would love to extradite and make pay for their crimes. So I even liked hearing about the, that's why their current mission is we realize, you know, the FBI is missing and used to put be put bad guys in jail or whatever. Now they realize with cyber, they're not always going to be able to put an international bad guy in jail. But God knows they are going to drive costs. So just hearing about all the ways that they're putting costs on actors that might seem to be getting away with it because they're still free in whatever country they're in. 
they do have some costs on them that's probably making life miserable. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, even I, at a minimum, they they were very frank that you know, with, especially with some of these Russian a or actors in Russia, it's like, yeah, you are stuck in Russia now for the yeah. rest of your life because <laughs> if you ever try and take a vacation to Greece or anything like that, you'll be picked up and enjoy your uh, vacations in Siberia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, like, it, was, I, yeah. it was good. Kudos to that, and also. Like one of the things they did hammer home throughout the entirety of it is that as a private organization, like what we can do to help is be open to working with the FBI. Like they are not going to come and try and investigate your organ. They're not trying to. What was the word? They don't want to re-victimize the victim. And so if you are the victim of an incident, like work with the FBI and they can do what they can to bring justice and even help you recover in that incident as well, too. And, and by the way, just because we're speaking and how do you re-victimize a victim, a lot of people feel like if I have FBI come to help me because I got ransomware, they might notice all these things and maybe I'm in an industry that's regulated and suddenly instead of helping me, they put fines on me for for not following a regulation that may or may not have got them in that. that that's they, they didn't say it as outright as I just did, but it seems a lot of companies are worried that by asking the government, the FBI in, they're going to start to search for lots of regulatory non-compliance. And clearly the FBI said that, no, when we come into a company with a mission, we're executing on that mission alone. And they even go and try to proactively protect against like directly working with regulators too. Like basically they're not going to go and like hand off all your crap to the regulators. In fact, they'll make it difficult if it ever does come to that too. Uh, because their mission is to try and help you as the victim. And that's probably more on like things like reporting regulation. Like if you you might have if once you learn about something, a timer starts going off for reporting, which is, by the way, a decent regulation. But the way there's a hole with that regulation is if you have an active investigation that you can't tip off the attackers yet, there are legitimate reasons to hold off on that that reporting. And that's where the FBI is good at knowing when the, the an active investigation requires some special ability that they they will help you get through the process in support of building the investigation. Those, yeah. And then like you said with building the relationships during peacetime like that applies to cybersecurity building relationships before you are under an active uh, incident meaning reach out to your local field office and get a contact name there so that if an incident happens you're not just firing off a report to IC3 into the void. Like can we pause for just someone. some just coolness? I mean, if you're a CISO, the takeaway is what Mark just said. Go to your local field agency. Say, I work in the private sector and I'd like to have a special agent who I know I can contact in times of trouble. But as a little carrot for that, this event was cool. We, we went to Quantico. We, we were in the official FBI training building. We got the same training badges as them. So we're walking around with a lot of FBI training people on the grounds. You know, not the fanciest hotel room by any means, but pretty cool <laughs> if you're you're that type of person. If you've watched Hollywood movies like Silence of the Lambs, you're on the same Quantico where if if you watched, what's your name, Jodie Foster do that late night run in Silence of the Lambs on the Yellow Brick Road, you can do that run yourself one morning if you go to the FBI CISO Academy and you're you're coming to the rooms, getting this secret training and meeting some high pedigree. I mean, literally, we met and talked to for an hour or, or had a speech for an hour from the 
the newly appointed, you know, past director of the NSA, now head of all of U.S. cybersecurity. And finally, you know, depending on your, your things, you even get to go to a FBI sheeting range. So besides being very valuable to, to have these contacts if you're a CISO and ever are in a situation, it's just kind of a neat thing to do. I think they know that, and I think that's the way they help get, you know, it's a, a little carrot to help get CISOs come and, and make those relationships. So I didn't want to talk all about it without mentioning the, the coolness factor. I don't know about you, Mark, but uh, when we were driving through two military checkpoints at 11 at night, hoping we weren't going to have an uh, M4 pulled on us, uh, it, it was pretty cool. Yep, it was pretty cool, I have to admit. But like overall, like my big takeaway was just it's good to see them proactively trying. Like it's good to see that it's something that that it, like putting a face to it and seeing that they do actually care and that they're actively working to try and improve cybersecurity across the country by working with the private sector. Because we are like when it comes to cyber, we are the organizations that have to deal with it. Yep. And the, by the way, that was a big acknowledgement that the realization that industrial control, all the stuff they're trying to protect is actually in the control mostly of private companies. Yeah, I feel like it was a pretty obvious, you could really see a difference of old guard versus new guard. Not that old guard were bad at, you know, not good at what they did, but just the, the realization that you have to open up some intelligence sharing in order to actually have the mission of prevent, you know, to protecting the nation. It does require collaboration. And thus, if, you know, you can't just be in your silos anymore. Yep. So, yay, America. <laughs> Merca. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from at least one of us next week.